Pints for Jack, Season 4, Episode 96. After Hours with Mike Goma Gormley. Welcome to Pints for Jack. We are now just two weeks away from wrapping up Season 4. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's going to happen after that in the season finale episodes. But the short version is we're going to be taking a month off and then returning for season five in November when we'll be diving into The Four Loves. But today we have a very special guest. We are talking to Mike Goma Gormley. Michael Gormley has an MA in Theology and Christian Ministry from Franciscan University of Steubenville, which is incidentally where he met his wife, Shannon. He has been leading evangelization and ministry efforts for the past 15 years, both as a full-time parish staff member and also as a speaker and consultant for parishes, dioceses, and campus ministries. Specifically, he's been the director of evangelization at St. Anthony of Padua Catholic Church, and he's also the founder and creative director of layevangelist.com. Mike is also the producer and co-host of the podcast Catching Foxes with Luke Carey, where they discuss the collision of faith and culture. That's what their website says anyway, but uh, on their last episode, they mainly concentrated on the subject of the 80s German-French R&B duo Millie Vanilli. Goma also co-hosts another podcast with another college buddy, Dave Punch the Devil in the Face Van Vickel. And on this podcast, they focus on how to share the gospel, and it's called Every Knee Shall Bow. Michael Gormley, welcome to Pints for Jack. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, let's do this. <laughs> I would also like to announce that I am temporarily renaming this podcast. For the next hour, it will be called Every Knee Shall Catch Foxes with Pints, which I think must be the ultimate name for any religious podcast. I think it's, uh, I think it's very religious but not spiritual, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Matt Frad is jealous of this one. I, 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 think, I, think, I think we've gone a step above at this point. You know, it's funny. There are so many pints podcast now and i was like he was like what is going on when he heard us do the ad for you and i was like dude they're legit they are legit you, you <laughs> and we actually drink <laughs> and they actually drink yeah i'm like yeah oh oh yeah matt needs more beer in his life i think i agree i agree i think yeah. he'll be happier uh, actually isn't that one of the things that saint thomas said you know if you want to be happy you know the hot bath and a glass of wine mm-hmm I think he said, have the glass of wine in the hot bath, like all at the same time. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Even better. And a good cry. I think a good cry was one of them, too. <laughs> Which is what literally what I'm doing right now. I got my laptop set up in the bathtub. I'm, I got my glass, and I'm, I've been crying a lot lately. <laughs> that would explain why your video is off. Thank you. That's, that's, <laughs> You're welcome. That's, that's like a corporal and spiritual work of mercy, all in one. <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> well, as our listeners know, the Jack in Pints with Jack is C.S. Lewis. Jack was his nickname. And whenever I give talks about Lewis, I always have to begin the talk by explaining that because I know I'm just going to inevitably refer to him as Jack over the course of the talk. And it confuses people thinking that I'm talking about one guy called C.S. Lewis, and another guy called Jack. And over the next hour, I'm sure I'm going to be calling you Goma from time to time. So I think we have mm. to start there. Before we go any further... And for listeners who are unaware, how did this become your nickname? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sad. So when I was a sophomore in high school, um, all my friends went to Bishop Kelly Catholic High School. That's where I was when I was a freshman. And a lot of family friends were the theology teachers. Not all of them, but uh, many of them were not teaching what I would call Roman Catholic theology 
uh, as par for the course in many Catholic high schools in the 90s. And so I, instead of fighting, I met this girl who I had a huge crush on. And I, <laughs> after a ZZ Top concert, I said to my mom, uh, I woke her up. I'm like, hey, it's 2.30. I got home from the ZZ Top concert. Also, I want to be homeschooled. So I started homeschooling when they were at Bishop Kelly. And I thought that was an easy way out of getting in fights with these people because they did not teach in any way, shape, or form Christianity in their theology class. So, uh, so I was at home and I would wake up at noon and make a big <laughs> salad and me and my mom would watch Law and Order. And one day at like 11 o'clock, my buddies called me on a payphone. That's how old I am, right? I'm 39. So they called me on a payphone. And they had just gotten out of Bible One class, and my last name being Gormley, uh, one of my stoner-sounding friends, but he wasn't a stoner. He would always call me Gormley. What's up, Gormley? <laughs> and then he had just come out of Bible One, Old Testament, and uh, they just learned about the prophet Hosea, who God commands him to marry a prostitute to show Israel's infidelity to the covenant with Yahweh. And the prostitute's name was Gomer. And he goes, Gormley, wait, whoa, Gomer, whoa. And then when I eventually, so that kind of became a casual nickname, not really a hard and fast thing. But then I moved from Oklahoma to Texas, and a lot of people knew me as both. But when I went to Franciscan, my fall semester freshman year, there were 5,000 Michaels. Every homeschooled <laughs> family named their kid Michael. So I just said, call me Gomer. And no one even knew my name was Michael. One day I was upset about that, but that was stupid. So no, my buddy just reminded me of that. He's like, who's Michael Gormley? Forget that guy. But uh, So everyone called me Gomer, and then I became a youth minister, and it kind of stuck. So I just rolled with it. Why not? So I'm nicknamed after the prostitute wife of the prophet Hosea, like a gentleman. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> like a warrior. My dad, when I first told him that, he thought I was nicknamed after Gomer Pyle. And I go, no, like the prostitute <laughs> wife of the prophet Jose. And he just looked at me. Now, my dad is a tough guy from inner city Philadelphia. And he goes, you're named after a woman? And I was like, oh, God. It's a, it's a generational thing, Dad. Little did I know. <laughs> when I first heard your name, I thought it was a take on the Adams family with Gomez. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, but no, prostitute. prostitute. Gotcha. <laughs> so you and I first met when you came to San Diego for a Steubenville conference. Mm. And for listeners who aren't aware, Steubenville conferences, they happen all across the country, despite the name. They, I really think they need to rename it because it confuses lots of people. But these conferences, they bring great musicians and speakers. It's basically a weekend retreat for yeah thousands of teenagers to grow in their faith. And I had helped out with the San Diego conference, I want to say about seven years. Nice. And my main job was to pick up the speakers and the musicians from the airport, drive them to and from their hotels, as well as around the campus for when they were giving their different talks. And in 2016, I went and looked it up. The speakers in San Diego were Oscar Rivera, Mary Bielski, Paul George, and you. Yay! So, listeners, basically, I was Gomer's chauffeur for the weekend. Uh, and it was <laughs> actually only afterwards I found out that he was that guy from the Catching Foxes podcast. Yeah, you know, it's awesome because whenever I go to Steubenville conferences and no no one knows me because uh, of the of Catching Foxes podcast because I'm not really allowed to talk about it because <laughs> you know? it is uh, it's America's number one Catholic podcast asterisk footnote with explicit content and <laughs> when people find that out they're like oh a catholic podcast like father michael schmitz 
<laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's better, but <laughs> but it's also explicit. And they just look at me like, I don't understand. I was like, you know how you talk with your friends in everyday life and pretend like you don't when you start talking about religious things? Well, we talk about religious things as if we're talking about them in our everyday life. So sometimes we cuss. Sometimes we make wildly inappropriate jokes. Most of the time I edit those jokes out. But uh yeah, so it's it's so fun that when I go to these Steubenville youth conferences, every so often I'll find a youth minister. This last one was in it was in St. Louis, um, Steubenville, Mid America. And when I walked out to give the men's talk, there's one guy who goes, "Yeah, Gomer, catch your foxes, yeah." <laughs> it was like a thousand people, and he's like way off in the back. So it's always fun. It's always fun. Now, was I a jerk? I wasn't a jerk, was I? I wasn't no, a jerk. No, you were great. Uh, I often tell people. Doing that job for the Steubenville conferences, I have two very distinct tiers of Catholic speakers and musicians. <laughs> there are some that are just wonderful, and there are others that a little bit more deaverish. Yeah. You know, and it's funny is uh, me and Matt Frad were talking about this one time because he used to do the Steubenville conferences. And he said, you know what's funny? I re distinctly remember having just a really bad day and my flight got delayed and I'm waiting to go to the airport. And now I realize I'm going to have to sit the airport for like seven hours instead of two. And I was just mad. And I had just given the you know morning keynote on Sunday and I was just really quiet. Like two years later, three years later, the person's like, yeah, you were kind of a jerk. <laughs> it's like, I was just quiet. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. Like, even when you're not trying to be a diva. So, much. so I always go out of my way. I'm like, how you doing? Tell me about you. Let's talk about theology, even though I just talked for a whole weekend straight. <laughs> Tell me about your problems. No, well, you never know when the chauffeur might eventually end up with a podcast. So it's, yeah. it's a good strategy. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good strategy. <laughs> well, Catching Foxes might be a bit wild, but in 2018, at the end of the year, you launched a little bit more of a reputable podcast, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Every Knee Shall Bow with Dave, I don't need no nickname, Van Vickle. Mm -hmm. And I think this is when I started listening to you regularly. And then our paths crossed yet again in 2019 when our director of young adult ministry in San Diego, Patrick Rivera, he invited you and Luke to come to San Diego to speak at Theology on Tap. And by that point, I had started doing podcasty sorts of things. So I was the audio engineer for the night. And I remember you guys had to speak on goodness because we were doing a, 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 a series in that Theology on Tap on the transcendentals on truth, goodness and beauty. And you guys were the bologna sandwich in the middle. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? is number one patrick what a great guy huh <laughs> i love that guy he is such a good guy and he's such a he's just a good dude that when me and luke were ghosting him because of adhd and all that stuff all the excuses we make he <laughs> he pulled out a typewriter and he hand typed letters and mailed them to us that had the exact same content of his emails <laughs> in order to get our flights booked and all that stuff it was so funny uh, he he is such a he, uh, Patrick is kind and merciful, slow to anger, and quick in compassion. <laughs> but that night was awesome. Like they were out in that mission church, mm -hmm. and all those tables were set up. And Aunt D showed up, and it was a cool night. That's a that's one of my favorite venues of all time. And here's just a weird coincidence, throwing it out there. Um, I'm also uh, I did a podcast today with my parish, so I also am a part of a parish podcast. But I'm not the guy. Our mm -hmm. communications director You're just that guy. guy. I'm that guy, <laughs> not the guy. And uh, and he wanted to do it on the transcendentals. And so 
I literally did one on unity, truth, beauty, goodness, and being itself, right? That's sort of, you know, whatever. So the modern transcendentals are truth, beauty, and goodness. But the kind of the Thomas Aquinas, he has a bunch of different ones. But mm -hmm. um, so I had to do it on that. And it's always the goodness. Goodness is what gets me. I know I'm supposed to be all like modern and cool or postmodern and talk about beauty, but it's the goodness that gets me. Okay, this is the first of many digressions I'm sure we're going to make tonight, and we haven't Wee. even got to the quote of the week. Have you watched Ted Lasso? Uh, season one, yeah. I love that show. I mean, language warning. It's, yeah. it's kind of like catching foxes. Don't listen to it with your grandma. Uh, but there's something about his character that is just so good Yeah, that you just love him. Yeah. Yeah, Luke said after the kind of thing that pushed me over to actually watching it, because Apple's stuff, when Apple went, launched into the Apple TV space, everything was so dang woke. Yeah. At least all their ads and stuff, except for C, which is their Jason Samoa stuff. But everything was so woke, it was kind of driving me nuts. And I hesitated on watching that. And man, so I when I watched the first episode, I was like, I get it. This guy is so overwhelmingly kind, nice, all that stuff. That I watched the next episode. I binged the whole season, then went to bed at like three in the morning, told my wife about how much I liked it. We watched one episode before the kids woke up, and then we binged it again. <laughs> I binged it with her uh, that night, and we, we've we been hooked ever since. We love it. Yeah, my wife and I binged it as well. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it is it is quite a, quite a wonderful show. Uh, I can almost forgive him for describing tea as, what did he call it? Oh, Dark so disgusting. mud water, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so disgusting. When he said that, I was like, yes, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I have tried so hard to like tea. If it's not peppermint, I don't know how to deal with it. Oh, dear. Oh, well, mm. well, let's, uh, let's, let's move on. Wait, 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 explain to me, explain to me English breakfast tea. What is that? It is a black tea that you get a lot here in the States. It's pretty yeah. good. It's caffeinated. Uh, but if you want really good stuff. I would I would try something else like Tetley's or even Twinings is pretty good. Will you do me a favor, a small favor? Will you say tea, Earl Grey, hot? <laughs> Computer, tea, <laughs> Earl Grey, hot. Nailed it. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> now, I normally map out our episodes in a lot of detail, but I just have a bunch. I have a smorgasbord. I can't even say that properly. A smorgasbord. You know, I shouldn't have chosen that word uh, of topics <laughs> that I want to talk about. So okay. um, I'm excited. I just man. want to thank you for the three new listeners that you got us from advertising <laughs> on Catching Foxes. Um, that was that was very special. And let's just get on to the quote of the week. And listeners, whenever I listen to Goma talk about stuff, I'm often struck about how his worldview is so shaped by the Gospels. And so, based on that, I decided to choose for today's quote of the week from Jack's essay, Is Theology Poetry, where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Mm. And for the drink of the week, I'm drinking my last bottle of my first six-pack of local Wisconsin beer since we just moved. It's nice. called Spotted Cow, and it's delicious. Uh, Mike, what are you drinking? Okay, I am not drinking anything that comes in a pint. If it did, I'd be passed out on the floor by now. I am drinking something that I rarely have, but I literally bought it just for this show. Oh, I'm touched. I am drinking a white Russian. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the show. It's just a fancy drink for me. Because other than that, I would be drinking Truly's Fruit Punch Hard Cider. 
and everyone makes fun of me for that, but uh, I don't know. No, I think I think that's fine. I mean, I appreciate you know the uh, the the effort. Thank you. Thank the you. goma abides. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, we also recently had a new listener, Sterling Bud Summers, join us on Patreon. So I want to now offer him a toast. So if you'll raise your glass, mm-hmm. Bud, may you always offer all you have to the Lord, not conforming to the pattern of this world, but be daily renewed by His Holy Spirit. Cheers. Cheers. Nice. And that is one of my favorite Jack quotes that you threw out there. I love it. Love Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) So I gave a little bit of a bio earlier and people who don't know you, I think are in, even in the first 15 minutes of the show, getting to know you rather quickly, but would you mind filling out a little bit more about your background and faith journey? So people have got a better idea of where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my faith journey really starts out in where I was born in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma in 1982. Because uh, hardcore fundamentalist, buckle o the Bible Belt, you know, in the shadow of Oral Roberts University, Rama Bible College was right down the street, all these non-denominational fundamentalist institutions. And it was crazy being Catholic because the Ku Klux Klan used to burn crosses in in front of my church um, when I went to public school because we couldn't afford Catholic school, even though our Catholic school was pretty, pretty uh, inexpensive at the time. I went to public school and I was, uh, me and my brother, we were the only Catholics in the whole school. And so we used to get picked on and there was all, like, like, to drive to school, I had to pass by, uh, you know, Main Street Baptist Church and they would have a seven week homily series or sermon series on why Catholicism is a cult. And it was just, uh, it was just in the atmosphere. And, but I was also simultaneously known by all my teachers as the most religious Christian kid in the school. So whenever things would come up, like they would be like, Mike, what do you think about this? And I would go <laughs> off and because my mom was also the DRE of our parish. Um, it was a Polish Capuchin Franciscan mission church. The Polish priests were liberated from a Nazi concentration camp by troops from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, of all places. They had the tattoos of the numbers on their arm. They lived heroic lives when they were newly ordained priests in prison in in um i i don't know the name of the concentration camp but it wasn't the you know auschwitz or dachau it was a a smaller one but i mean they would watch their brother priest be tortured and killed uh for laughs by the nazi soldiers and so when they were freed they said out of a debt of gratitude we want to come to broken arrow oklahoma of all places so two priests and one lay consecrated um woman uh, eventually the priest made the journey up. They begged the whole way old school Franciscan style and they built our church. And that was kind of like the siege mentality that everyone who went, if you cared a little bit about your faith at our church, you cared a lot because everyone was against you. And so, uh, for my, for my upbringing, it was the Catholic faith was everything. You know, my parents every week went to a Bible study, you know, all that stuff. My parents were so involved. My dad and the Knights of Columbus. So, Whenever I um, become a teenager, I desire above all things, because I had spent the last four years as a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, listening to Scott Hahn audio cassette lectures. And I was like, I have to go to Soonville. I, I turned down being, I was, I was moments away from going to um, Holy Trinity Seminary in Dallas. And I decided, no, I want to go to Soonville instead. And I got accepted at the last minute. And there I went to Soonville and I fell in love. I majored in 
um, philosophy and theology philosophy because I thought I was going to be a priest. And then I thought, well, you can't go to Steubenville and not major in theology. So I tried to cross out philosophy and circle in the bubble for theology. And they <laughs> get a piece of paper back saying double majoring. And I was like, we'll see how this works. And it worked beautifully, beautifully. I took the max load of credits every semester. I fell in love with it. And uh, I joined a household called AMDG. And that's where I realized the value of Christian community, both mm -hmm. as peers and men older. Um, they were the rock of my life. And from this day, everything that I have in terms of my Catholic faith, I recognize as funneled through community and fostering community, being a part of that. So I went to my I, I got a job back at my home parish because I wanted to put down roots there. Um, my now wife was my then girlfriend, and she was at a parish on the other side of Houston, which you might as well say on the other side of the state, about an hour and 15 minutes away. And so we were all trying to do the youth ministry life teen thing. And um, eventually we would, when we finally, after me breaking up with her numerous times, we eventually made the commitment to get married. <laughs> we went back to Franciscan to finish our graduate degrees, and uh, and I launched layevangelist.com. Um, Shortly after a, uh, a a rough, after I got my master's degree, a very rough youth ministry year at a place that was just, it was a great place and great people, but it did not fit our family. And so my wife got a job back at her old church doing a different thing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try to launch my own speaking ministry. And it went nowhere. I was just at home. I was, uh, I say, I told people all the time I was self-employed, but I was literally unemployed. I, I think I gave two talks that year. So then I got back into youth ministry and then layevangelist.com blew up. And I've been traveling every month, two times a month, four times a month, every other month, whatever I wanted to do ever since. And then thank God one day someone came, my old boss, my old youth minister, the back at my church that I'm at now, she called me up and she said, how would you like to do adult faith formation? I said, dear God, yes. Give me away <laughs> from the middle schoolers, please. I can't do youth ministry anymore. If I have to look at one more liability form, I'm going to go nuts. So I go and I've been doing adult faith formation now for eight years uh, at St. Anthony's. And because of COVID and all the kind of craziness and, and you know, we had layoffs, we lost about 10 people um, because of the plummeting offertory and all this stuff. I became not only a director, but I, I then took over youth ministry and now I'm in charge of all of womb to tomb faith formation. So now I have my mom's job. I'm the DRE, basically. We call it the director of evangelization, but that's what I'm doing now. So it, it's pretty crazy. So I travel and speak on the side. I literally yesterday got back from the provincial assembly for the Atlanta diocese. So it's Atlanta, Raleigh, uh, Raleigh, um, Charlotte, Charleston, and uh, Savannah. And I did all the a conference on youth ministry for priests and bishops. And um, so I do stuff like that. I do parish permissions and it's a source of great joy for me. But I will say this um, with doing the speaker thing, there is nothing like it's very sycophantic, right? So people who like you will say nice things about you and they'll cry at the bottom of the stage after your talk and hug you and, Oh, that was so great. But you don't journey with anyone. And I work at a parish where I have to deal with the ugly side of of very fussy parishioners and people who grow in their faith and then relapse and fall back and backslide and all the other things. So I am committed to making disciples in my hometown, in my home parish, 
Um, you know, we have community that is my life. Uh, I love it. So I get to do the speaking stuff and the consulting stuff and all that stuff. But my heart is forming disciples here at the home parish. And a lot of those themes that you've touched on, it really comes across in all of your podcasts, particularly the emphasis on community, uh, the idea that yep. it's just, it's not like you're just one and done. It's like, no, this is now, this is now a journey. You're a disciple. You've followed Jesus. So that's what you're now doing for the rest of your lives. So let's, let's just briefly talk about your podcasts so people know what to expect. So Catching Foxes was, I think it was one of the first Catholic podcasts I actually even ever heard of. Uh, I looked it up. You started six years ago, and you have about a little over 300 episodes. Yep. Uh, so aside from Millie Vanilli, what is it that you talk about? What would you say is the point of Catching Foxes? No, that's it. It's Millie Vanilli. Like, we peaked. <laughs> we're done. No, uh, Catching Foxes, the, the idea around it was me and Luke. And Luke, I met at Franciscan my fall semester, freshman year, freshman orientation, that whole deal. He's an AMDG household with me. Um, the thing with Luke and I is catching foxes are the types of conversations that we have when we got, uh, uh, you know, beer in our hands and we're at a bar and we're talking, you know, and I, I had just gotten out of a theology class or whatever. It's about life. It's about all this stuff. So what, what we noticed was at the time there were no Catholic shows, right? There were Catholic, there were radio shows that they would turn into podcasts like Catholic Answers Live, which is great. I love Catholic Answers. I really do. I listen to all their stuff. Catholic Answers Live, Catholic Answers Focus, Council of Trent with Trent Horn. But there are very few two white guys bantering back and forth for a podcast audience. And me and Luke love the podcast as a format, right? Like from the very beginning it existed, I have been a fan of podcasts. So since 2006, I have always listened to podcasts on my Apple iPod, right? Like totally. So the idea of Catching Foxes from Luke and Maya's perspective was let's do a show where we're not trying to instruct people in the Catholic faith. This isn't catechism class online. We are two adults at various levels of intoxication. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say various levels of adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at various levels of maturity due to the intoxication. And we are having an honest conversation about whatever. Like, that's the goal. Sometimes me and Luke, the banter at the beginning that some people hate, is the show. And sometimes <laughs> we dive right into a topic and we go the whole time. And sometimes we bounce around. We're notorious for our show, The 10-Minute Topic, because we can't think of anything, so we beg our Patreon supporters, give us 10-minute topics because we don't know what to talk about. But the <laughs> whole point is discussion over instruction. That's one of our taglines. And I'll never forget what cemented this for me was a man sent me and Luke uh, an email. And he said, when you actually get past your stupid John Boy and Billy BS and get to, and I had no idea that that was like a syndicated morning shock jock show, and you actually get to the point it's tolerable, but your language is horrible, you're horrible people, clean it up, I want to be able to listen to this with my high school son, how dare you? And so I was thinking of a response, and that kept me up for night, you know, for like two or three nights, and I remembered the perfect response, which actually was a person complaining to the CEO of Southwest Airlines, your stewardesses are making a joke out of the in-flight safety stuff. You need to get them, tell them to be serious. And humor is one of their bedrock kind of values. And he just wrote back to her, sorry to lose you as a customer. So I wrote back to him, sorry to lose you as a listener. Because I'm, 
There are literally 4,000 shows that you can do <laughs> that hit everything, every topic. The liturgy guys, the lanky guys, that's a thing. All the guys, they're all talking about theology. All the guys, all and every, the pints. All the pints, all the Aquinas's, all the Augustines. You know, they're all out there, right? It's all out. You can literally get someone reading the Summa article by article if that's your jam. Okay, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to do a talk show with two guys. Sometimes we interview people. So that's what Catching Foxes is supposed to be. So I had a guy come up to me and say, or, or talked smack about me, but it really mattered because he uh, paid me for stuff. And uh, he said, I don't know if I'm going to have Gormley on anymore. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I hear sometimes on Catching Foxes he uses foul language. And the guy looked at him. This is Dave Van Vickle of Every Knee Shall Bow. This is before we ever had a show. He goes, dude. You literally have the foulest mouth of any Catholic I know. And the guy said to him, yeah, but not in public, not on a podcast. And he's like, so you're mad at them for being on? And we don't have a foul mouth that much-ish. Maybe I, little, I actually but- think you've got a good deal cleaner recently. I just put this down to Matt's influence since he decided to clean up his language. Oh, no, no, no. Has nothing to do with that. <laughs> literally has nothing to do with Matt. Sometimes I edit. When me and Luke go off, I, those don't make it. Those don't. Oh my gosh! The things we said at the last episode, due to a recent article about uh, a uh, South American bishop being exposed and all this stuff. Me and Luke went off for like ten minutes, and then I just snip, snip. That's not going in the actual show because Michael Gorman is about to talk to a bunch of bishops and priests, and I don't want that out there. So yes, there is some debauchery. It used to be more alcohol fueled in the beginning. There's one episode where. I was try- I was so nervous. It was our first interview, episode seven, uh, Arlene Spensley, and I was drinking a beer. And by the time I looked down, we were ten minutes or twenty minutes into the show, and I had finished a six pack, and I didn't realize that. And I leaned back in my chair, and my chair broke, and I <laughs> fell over. And you just—it's crazy. So no, the, our our podcast is what humans sound like when they're talking, who are also very immature about their Catholic faith and other things. Well, what about your more reputable podcast, Every Knee Shall Bow? Uh, Every Knee Shall Bow was inspired by the fact that I'm a huge Bishop Robert Barron fan. Well, huge. I love the guy. I love I love Brandon Vaught. I love all the things that they do. I have every book they've ever they've ever done, right? And good lord, I think they got like 20 books in the pipeline mm-hmm. this year. Yikes. But when they were doing the um, and this is, I've never really shared this publicly, but the thing that pushed me over the hump was Bishop Aaron saying, we're going to do this word on fire Institute to train an army of evangelists. And then the first thing was him teaching on Hansers von Balthasar. And then the second thing was, I believe it was imaginative apologetics, which both are great courses. And I said, well, they're not teaching people how to share the gospel. Like really how to share the gospel. Like I understand Hans Urs von Balthasar, and I've studied him at, at Franciscan. I took a Texa von Balthasar class, um, but at the same time, like, how does how does Ma and Pa Catholic share the gospel with the person sitting next to them? And it really bothered me that 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 we come so close to it, but then it's like academic theology, apologetics, apolog. I love apologetics. But it's not evangelization, and no. it's it's a it's an element, a component within the broader thing, a moment to use JP two and and uh, Pope Paul the sixth language. But 
man alive. I just want to help people talk to other people in different scenarios. So, so me and Dave and Vicar, we both felt the same. Like we need to, and Dave is the master evangelist. Totally. He's the most human person I have ever met in my life, even though he's weird. <laughs> and he shares the gospel in such a beautiful way with people that he, I steal everything he does, everything. So really the show is just for me to steal ideas from him. And, uh, but our goal is to help parishes, DREs, priests to help average Roman Catholics who don't even know what the heck they believe to number one, believe in the risen Lord. And then number two, be equipped to share it, like to literally walk out the door that day and let people know that God loves them. That's the point of every knee shall bow. And it's bow, not bend. How dare you? <laughs> people always want to say bend. And I'm like, yes, I get it. It makes more sense. And shall bow. It's weird. But who cares? I love it. In an earlier version of the notes, I, d- I did have a snarky remark about that. But I you know, mm. didn't want to get a confession afterwards. <laughs> uh, but no, I love every knee shall bow. I, I, whatever I learned about evangelism, I learned when I went to Boston churches. Because you called it evangelism. Yeah. It, well, I was going to, yeah, we probably should explain. <laughs> Evangelization, evangelism is basically, it, there's a technical difference, but it's really just Protestant Catholic lingo differences. Yeah. Um, but it was it was when I went to uh, an Anglican church, a non-denominational church, and a Pentecostal church. That was where I heard people talking about conversations that they'd had with their neighbors and about how they had invited them to church and do all these other things that I had, had never really considered before. Mm-hmm. So. And it's a dang shame. It's a dang shame that literally you go to Fuller Seminary, which is the pr- one of the premier uh, evangelical seminaries that equips people for evangelization. And the first 30 years of its existence, they just studied Roman Catholic missiology because we were the only ones engaged in mission. And now it's like, well, we spread to, quote unquote, the rest of the world and we're done. Like we just gave up. We gave up Greek Orthodox and Jews, two somewhat ethnic based religions, bring in more adult converts than Roman Catholicism. And it breaks my chubby little heart. So that that's kind of like Ascension Press. They are wonderful people. They are very accommodating of our me and Dave's uh, horrible lives right now. And so they they are so patient with us. But we try to turn out every week content for the for our audience that actually helps them share the good news of the gospel and in a very practical way you don't you don't disappear up to the stratosphere uh in theology a lot of it is incredibly practical one of the things i meant to ask you have you ever thought about writing a book because you know isn't that kind of the thing you get a podcast and then you get a book that you chill out Mm. on there okay so i'll say two things number one i have a thousand books with chapters one and two written (laughs) and that's it (laughs) a thousand of them Right now, I have a book called Sin and Atonement, another one called Why Did Jesus Have to Die? You'd think they're the same book, but for some reason, I've started different things. I've got about 10. I have I have somewhere between 10 and 20,000 words of four different books right now. But I do have a chapter in a book coming out for Dr. Peter Kraft, Millennials oh, Honoring What He's Done in Our Lives. And uh, John DeRosa of the Classical Theism Podcast has the first chapter, and I have the second chapter. And uh, so I, I have chapters published. I've done devotionals in Australia for a beautiful diocese, Wollongong Diocese. Mm-hmm. I've, the Catching Foxes fans have had me write stuff for them. But um, my, my, I would love to. I would love to. But there's another thing 
that I get from Luke, which is the contrarian side, where I feel cheap doing the thing. You know what? I'm, okay, I, I don't. I don't even know how to say. It, but like, yes, there's there's a lot of people who write a book, make a podcast, have a podcast about the book, and vice versa, and all of the above, and. And I feel like I, I want the podcasts that I do to be their own thing and be able to breathe and stand on their own. And then the book thing, the book is really about credibility. And I know it's my arrogance. Like I want my, I want a book. I want a book. I really do. <laughs> I understand but I just, <laughs> I just feel like I don't have anything worth the permanence of print. Just give me a microphone and let everyone forget what I say in two weeks. <laughs> Well, I disagree, but having said that, let's talk about some things. Mm. Let's do it. You often quote C.S. Lewis on both of your podcasts. Honestly, one of the heuristics I follow when deciding whether or not to listen to an episode of Catching Foxes is, is there a quotation by an inkling in the title? <laughs> Whenever you do that, I can guarantee you I will listen. Nice. Uh, but where did C.S. Lewis fit into your own journey? Okay, so the very first time I ever encountered the word. So I read the Chronicles of Narnia, did not know they were a Christian anything because it was in a public school. They didn't talk about it. There was some intuition about it. And I remember my neighbor across the street was doing a, a, a collage on the silver chair. And he had mentioned that it's a Christian author. I had no idea. So then fast forward, I'm in high school. I desperately want to throw my Catholic faith in the trash can and become a Muslim or anything other than that. And um, my mom got into this guy named Dr. Scott Hahn. And it he had an audio cassette series called Where is God in an Ungodly World? So there were three series that changed my life, honestly. Where is God in an Ungodly World? Which is literally just his class lectures at Franciscan. What is the cost of the new Pentecost, which talks about, people don't know this, but Scott Hahn used to be a pretty hardcore charismatic, too. Thank you, Father Mike Scanlon, for bringing him to Franciscan. Um, but then it was the last one was on the Sermon on the Mount. And I honestly listened to Where is God in an Ungodly World? And he said, we, went through, we go through all these arguments for God's existence to where you know that there's some supernatural being. And he said, okay, after Thomas's five ways, let's get to the heart of the Christian, of the God that we believe in. Let's go through C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity and his moral argument for God's existence. And I loved it. It transformed. And so then I went out and got mere Christianity. Uh, I was probably 14, 15 at the time. And then I got the Screwtape Letters. My mom had uh, my mom had Screwtape Letters. I got The Great Divorce. And just I read it, and then I reread the Chronicles of Narnia, and I loved it. And then when I was in college, my buddy worked for LifeTeam.com, and the the Chronicles of Narnia movies were coming out, like the first movie, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so they said, Mike, do you think you could read all of his most popular books and write individual reviews of all of them and then write big sweeping reviews of the whole Chronicles of Narnia and all this stuff? And I was like, oh, I would like nothing better. So it was the summer. I was at Steubenville. I was taking one or two classes. And I would read every day. I, I would crush a Narnia book. And I would write multiple reviews of a Narnia book. And then I would grab uh, Mere Christianity and I would read that. Then I'd go back to the Narnia books and be like, whoa, there's so much in, of Mere Christianity in the Narnia books. So I'd rewrite my reviews. And they were getting published. And 
it, I just fell in love. And so I have his books now on audiobook. And whenever I can't figure out a book to listen to, a new book to get, I love audiobooks. I always, I always default to C.S. Lewis. I'm kind of like um, Reverend uh, Timothy Keller, who mm-hmm. says, uh, people always joke, when you prepare for a homily, Versus when you don't, when you don't, you talk, you quote, when you do, you quote C.S. Lewis sometimes, but when you don't, you quote him all the time because you just kind of default to him. And that's me. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, I would love to drink with that guy. I love that man. Love him. That's definitely my dream as well. Right. Well, then let's transition and talk about atonement. Cause I know you've been on a bit of an atonement kick recently. Yep. In fact, yep. the week that we're recording this, you were on the classical theism podcast with our mutual friend, John DeRosa. And I would thoroughly recommend for listeners to go and have a listen to that episode. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes, but rather than retread all of that material, I want to put a CS Lewis spin on it and talk about yes. what Lewis talks about that subject in mere Christianity, and get your reactions to what he says in the chapter, The Perfect Penitent. Mm-hmm. But before we go too far, we should probably define a few terms. So what is the atonement, and why are there all of these different models of it? Yeah, I would say this. The atonement uh, literally is an English word that's brought into pretty much universally into theological vocabulary. Um, it's not just a Greek or Latin, right? It's the only English word that really stuck across all of these things. It's often the word that's translated um, kippur in the Hebrew. And atonement means how do we come at one with Jesus Christ? So typically, atonement theology focuses specifically on the death of Jesus and how his dying and rising reconciled us, brought us at one with the Father. So you have soteriology, which is a study of salvation, which involves, I would say, atonement plus justification. But atonement itself is just why did Jesus have to die? Did he have to die? Could he just shed one drop of his blood? Could God just have forgiven us with a wave of his hand? You know, like, what is it about what Jesus did that was so necessary, fitting, important, crucial, whatever words you want to use? And so when we step back a moment, so many of us have heard that Christ died for us, but we don't understand exactly how that worked. So atonement theologies, plural, try to apprehend how that worked. And so there's a bunch of atonement theologies. There's a bunch. There's not any one. The fathers kind of rallied around what we would call the ransom theory of atonement, that our sin basically put us underneath slavery and bondage to the devil. And so Jesus and his death uh, paid that ransom by his blood to buy us back or redeem. The word redeem means to buy back, uh, to buy us back from the devil. Different fathers talked about it in different ways. Um, an- another way of viewing is the Christus Victor theology that was popularized by a-, a Swiss theologian that really drove home this notion of, no, 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 it's not this kind of modern Lutheran interpretation called penal substitutionary atonement. It's really Christ the victor over the dark powers. And it's a blend of a bunch of different things. You got people like N.T. Wright, Anglican theologian, who kind of blends penal substitutionary atonement with Christus Victor. But all of these things, these, these atonement theologies, are trying to grasp what and how did his death and resurrection reconcile us to God. And in mere Christianity, Lewis, he does seem to push back on some of the models of the atonement 
which yeah. were which are common. Uh, but he also makes a very clear distinction between the models of the atonement and the atonement itself. He says the central thing is that Christ's death somehow put us right, gave us a fresh start. But he says theories as to how this actually worked is another matter entirely. Yeah, as Roman Catholics, we don't have a declared theology of atonement. We have very, 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 very popular theology of atonement known as the satisfaction theory, especially through St. Thomas Aquinas. But there's not any one definitive, like declared by the church, this is how it happened. And Lewis actually offers his own atonement model in The Perfect Penitent, which he basically calls The Perfect Penitent. So <laughs> I'm interested, since you've done such a deep dive recently into the fathers and modern modern theologians and all of these different variations and crossovers of models, how would you describe The Perfect Penitent and what do you actually make of it? You know, it was funny because I, I think C.S. Lewis takes the church fathers and he offers a pretty modern twist. So Really quickly, the church fathers viewed us as hopelessly in bondage and in covenant with the devil, and that the devil had acquired rights over us. And so Christ, in he was the only person, because he never sinned, he didn't deserve to die. And so by dying in our, uh, by dying on behalf of us, not necessarily in our place, but on behalf of us. What he did was he didn't owe the devil his death and the devil took it. So therefore the ransom was paid infinitely because he didn't deserve to die. So he paid the ransom and set everyone free. It's interesting that C.S. Lewis often draws upon what we call the Christus Victor theology of the atonement and the ransom theology of the atonement. And he definitely, especially in mere Christianity, shies away from what we would call penal substitutionary atonement. Um, this is what he says. He says, we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. That's a formula. Like, he's like, yeah, okay, I get it. And it seems less silly now than what it did way back then. But really what he sees is Christ, because he's man, because he took on a human nature, can actually enter into our suffering and death. But because he's God, he can do it perfectly. And he in, in plunging into this death, instead of seeing like, uh, you know, a lot of people when they think of Christ on the cross, they think of it as, I deserve to die, but he said, no, I'll go in your place. And a lot of atheists criticize that. Oh, oh, I get it. So the thing that justifies me is an act that no judge in any court whatever except like listen i know she murdered this family of eight but i will take her place and go to the electric chair and his his insight i think is very pow powerful because i think it's totally in line with the new testament that often when the new testament talks about the redemption the very word redemption to redeem means to buy back these are economic terms and so what he wants to do is show like okay yeah for someone who murders someone it doesn't make sense to switch out like you're going to die instead of me dying. But in the case of debt, yeah, that does make sense. We often have stories of people zeroing out someone's debt, paying it off for someone else. And that idea, C.S. Lewis, it takes in um, very readily, just like the church fathers do. And so he draws on that very often of like footing the bill, paying the penalty, not in the sense of being punished, but in the general sense of like, I will cover you because you can't, you can't cover yourself, right? So mm -hmm. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. It's not that 
God was so mad at sin, he had to kill someone, right? That N.T. Wright, I think, does a brilliant job in in attacking that false caricature of atonement theology. Like, God the Father is so filled with wrath, he has, he has to have his blood, right? Someone's blood, anyone's blood, everyone's blood. Well, here the Son offers up his blood, but because he's God, it goes infinitely. C.S. Lewis wants to wants to draw something else out of this comparison. And he often uses the church fathers and this their ransom theory of atonement to kind of express it in a fuller, I think more, more humane way. Hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts? When Lewis said that he, he, he said, it's not, it doesn't sound as silly as it, as it used to, but it makes more sense to him in terms of somebody that is in debt uh, that can't, has yep. a bill they can't pay, well, then it will fall to somebody, a, a generous benefactor with with greater riches to uh, to pay the pay the debt on on their behalf, and that that makes more sense to him. It reminded me of a shift in my own theology in my twenties when I was looking into the atonement, and I started seeing a very clear difference between some atonement theologies, where either you seeing see wrath being poured out poured down upon the cross or whether you see a sacrifice of infinite value being mm-hmm. offered up to the father is it just simply debts being cleared or is it that there's now this super abundant grace that is now available a, a bank account that i've been given the card to <laughs> yeah i i like that because th- this is the thing that i think i think people lose sight of when god manifested himself to israel in egypt right the the theophany of Moses in Exodus chapter three, when God made Himself known, Genesis, you know, all of that is a prequel. What is a prequel? It's a thing that comes after the main thing, or and it's the story to kind of give you the backstory. So when Moses is revealing what he knows about this God that is claiming Israel as his as the national God, but also the one God overall. The amazing thing is he reveals himself as the redeemer of slaves, right? Mm. I know my redeemer lives. That is one of the most popular hymns on the lips of of people in in the temple liturgy. The redeemer is, is a slave market term. It means someone who buys back someone out of slavery. The book of Ruth is, is, a, is a very popular book. It's a very beautiful book. And it's about a Moabite woman whose mother-in-law, Naomi, is a, is a Jew from Bethlehem. And they fled to Moab, her and her husband and her, their sons fled to Moab during a famine. And then their sons marry Moabite women. The sons die. The husband dies. It's just Naomi. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, listen, you're young. You're beautiful. Go get another husband's. And Ruth says, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And it's beautiful. It's incredible. It's four chapters of amazingness. So she says, okay, well, I'm going to go back to my husband's home. So she goes back to Bethlehem. And there, they're gleaming the fields, right? They're picking up after the harvesters go by. And Boaz sees this beautiful Ruth. The story goes on. Boaz is a very rich, wealthy, well-to-do member of her husband's family, of uh, her father-in-law, Ruth's father-in-law's family. But he's not the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was a title and role of basically your rich uncle or grandfather, whatever patriarch was in your family. He was responsible for making sure the family property and people, the bloodline, didn't fall into slavery, didn't didn't get sold off. Because if you had debt, 
you would sell your children off or yourself. You, your land would get possessed and, and sold. So what the kinsman redeemer was in those societies, they had the right to buy people and property back. And the funny story of Boaz was they schemed so that he's like, hey, you know, this beautiful woman comes with a mother-in-law. And then he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you can have him. You're second in line. So Boaz marries Ruth, takes in Naomi, and she's the grandmother of King David. So this idea of kinsman redeemer was someone who buys back. When you're hopelessly lost in debt, when you're in bondage and slavery, the redeemer buys you back. Redemption was a completely different term than atonement. Atonement was a temple term that described what you do when you have sin and you want to be free of your sin. The New Testament combines ransom and redemption, which are slave market terms, with sacrifice and atonement, which are temple terms, right? And what is atonement all about? Well, if you look and just read Genesis, uh, Leviticus chapters one through two, just two chapters of Leviticus, you kill an animal outside the temple, you get its blood, and that blood is the atoning sacrifice. It's not the murdering of an animal. It's not like you said, well, listen, Lord, I committed adultery. I deserve death. So I'm going to put my sin on this animal. We're going to murder the animal just like I deserve your wrath. That's actually how pagan Rome did their sacrifice. That's how the pagans, uh, the Canaanites and the Philistines did their sacrifice. They killed the animal on the altar. Israel didn't. They killed their animal outside the tent and outside the tabernacle or outside the um, temple. And then they took the blood and brought it into the holy place and they smeared it on the altar. They splashed it on the floor in front of the holy of holies or uh, around the altar. The whole point was blood is a detergent that cleanses me from the pollution of sin. And so when you begin to see this beautifulness unravel within or not unravel, but like be fulfilled in Christ Jesus, his blood takes away the sin of the world because it's an infinite blood. So it's an infinite, it's of infinite worth because it's the blood of God himself. And so my favorite thing is um, when you go into the Chronicles of Narnia, right? So one day uh, I'm driving with my kids and we're talking about the story of Samson, right? What does Samson do? Samson at, you know, Samson's a terrible person. People keep oh, thinking yeah. like, the everyone loves Samson. He's a horrible person. <laughs> He's the worst of all the judges of Israel, right? God, he's a Nazarite, which means he can't drink wine, can't touch women, and can't cut his hair. So where do you find him? Nine times out of ten, he's at a pagan brothel, and he's just hooking up with ladies, right? One person thought that our show was called Catching Foxes because he tied up a bunch of foxes with torches on their tails. But that was after he spent, like, a weekend boozing with prostitutes. <laughs> you know, like, maybe it is. Maybe the Gomer thing comes full sway. But the idea <laughs> at its core was he was constantly violating his vow except for the haircut thing. And at the end of his thing, so, you know, we all know the story. Delilah cuts his hair. He gets thrown in prison. The enemies of Israel and of Israel's God imprison him in a dungeon. His hair grows back. They've already uh, stabbed out his eyes, which is super gross. But there, And so I'm telling the story to my kids, and I said, so there he is. He's brought out for the mockery of everyone as his hands are outstretched. And there he puts them on either side of uh, or on, on, on the twin pillars that hold up the roof of the temple of the pagan God, right? And they're surrounded by the generals and the kings and the enemies of God's chosen people. What does he do? 
he lays down his life so that others can be saved. And he shoves the pillars out. Of course, he dies in the process, but in dying, he wipes out the military that was trying to destroy Israel. I said, who does that remind you of? And I said that to my daughter, Katiri. Like, who does that remind you of, baby? She goes, Aslan. Without skipping to me, not Jesus. <laughs> I was going to say, what? like Gandalf when he fights the Balrog. <laughs> yeah. You shall not pass. Right? So I said, I said, what do you mean Aslan? <laughs> she said, well, you know, when Edmund ate the Turkish delight, he then became a slave of the queen, uh, the white witch, and she was going to destroy him. But then Aslan said, no, I'll go in his place. Now, the beautiful thing about what C.S. Lewis does is he walks you through substitutionary atonement. In Catholic theology, there is a place for substitution, not full penal substitutionary atonement, but there is a place for it. And the cool thing is, what does he say? So after the stone table cracks and he's resurrected and all this stuff, they're like, how did you do that? Like, what happened? And he said, the queen was right. According to the law of the magic of the beginning of time, right? Um, all those who are betrayers, traitors, belong to her. But according to the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, and I remember thinking about that when I was a little kid, and I'd be like, that's lame. Like, that's a total, <laughs> like, cop out. Like, oh, yeah, well, I have a magical bag over here that's even, you know, like, you didn't see this coming. But then when I reread it when I was in college, I was like, oh, my gosh. So here's the justice, the laws of right and wrong that rule the stars. And now he takes you back to a deeper magic that existed before creation itself, and it's the love of God. And, of course, the love of God pours itself out for the sake of his beloved. And I thought that was so beautiful, and that, the, that my daughters picked that up I thought was awesome. So I said, so, honey, who is Aslan? And this is back when she was, like, seven years old. I said, so who is Aslan? Now, the giant lion the size of an uh, elephant cub. And I was like, no, Aslan's Jesus. And the light clicked on in their eyes, and they were like, oh, that makes sense now. That makes sense. And from that moment on, I was like, C.S. Lewis, I love you. You and your atonement theology, it is beautiful. He does. He has beautiful, a beautiful way of depicting substitution and mercy and love and justice all within one beautiful, beautiful moment, right? I think your daughter is much smarter than I was. I remember when my mother told me that Aslan was Jesus after we read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I just thought my mom was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness, so many things we could talk about on there uh, with regards to uh, the way Lewis deals with participation in atonement, how it ties in with theosis. But I want to push on to do a couple more things. Uh, yes. so I can. I talk so much, don't I? I talk so much. It's all gold, Goma. It's all gold. It's all gold. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my white Russian. <laughs> <laughs> so this season, we've been working through the Screwtape Letters. Yeah. Any general thoughts on that book? Before I probe deeper, I love the screw tape letters. And funny story, you had uh, Doctor or Father um, Dwight Longenecker on the show to talk about the chronic. Uh, what was it? Uh, the Gargoyle Chronicles and the Gargoyle Code and the Slub Code. Gob Instructs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Slub. Oh gosh, uh, you know Lewis nails the names. I don't know if Father Dwight nailed the names, but Lewis really nailed the names. <laughs> um, Wormwood and all that stuff, but. Um, I told him that I, I really loved, so I, that, that the last talk that I gave in, in Charlotte, he sat front and center. He came up to me afterwards. He's like, Mr. Gormley, I really loved your talks. And the whole time I'm thinking, 
Tell that to your face. You are the most intimidating man I've ever met in my life. Tell your face you liked my talks. So uh, <laughs> he did not smile once. I'm cracking jokes left and right. I even made a seamless garment joke. Oh, I killed everyone else, but not him. But uh, so I, when I introduced when he introduced himself to me, I was like, oh, okay. I, I've read a lot of your stuff and blah blah blah. And I said, and I just listened to your Pints with Jack episode where you talk about. Um, what is it called? The gargoyle code, the gargoyle mm-hmm. code. And I was like, I loved it. I thought that conversation was so great. And he goes, yes, yes, it was great. I enjoyed that too. Yes. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about the screw tape letters, like it, the screw tape letters to me, I never read them. If I, uh, except reading the great divorce, either before or after I always excellent keep them choice. in tandem. Yeah. I always keep them in tandem. And I think he does such an excellent job. Um, I, I would say my favorite part, of the whole thing is when the patient is still not a Christian and he begins to contemplate timeless questions. And he's like, don't get him thinking about that stuff. Just distract him with the number nine bus and the thing. And look at that person over there and you distract him. You don't want him thinking deep thoughts, Hmm. you know? And I remember thinking that. And and then the next line was, or the one of the, another chapter was like, Oh no, war has broken out. You're happy. Don't be happy because that's when people start thinking seriously about life and death things. And and I, I remember really being moved as a high school student. You know, it, it wasn't for me so much about like I know for some people it's like spiritual warfare and all this stuff. But it was like, I, I mean, I guess it is. But it's like Lewis wrote my biography by talking about so many of these sins. He's so insightful. That I couldn't help, but I like I saw myself on every on every page, you know, and my own desire to know God, but only on my own terms. Yeah. I felt like of all things, that's what the screw tape letters laid bare. And then lastly, screw tape proposes a toast. You know, the the Napoleons and the Don Juans are gone. Now we have we've never had so much, but it's never been so paltry. You know, like I think about. I think about the sins of pornography, especially how it how it owns so many people. The number one question the priest asked me at the um, priests and bishops at that provincial assembly was, "What advice do you give for us as confessors of high school students and middle school students and young adults who talk about pornography and they're addicted to it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, see, that's it. Like they're addicted." I remember walking out of a middle school retreat and kids are crying and they loved it and oh my gosh the adoration and blah 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 and then i walk in in their cabin and they're watching porn on an iphone and you're like it owns them at such a deep level and for to take that screw tape the nefarious um plotting scheming to destroy our salvation in christ jesus and then you look at the great divorce and the guy who has the lust as the dragon on his shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. Every like everything that I read about that to me is like, yeah, yeah. We we live in a realm of almost a non-existence compared to what awaits us. The grass itself will cut our feet in the true heavenly homeland when we go farther up and further in. See what I did there? Farther up and further in. My favorite sermon of Lewis's is The Weight of Glory. And he says that we're like kids playing with mud pies because we've got no idea what is meant by a, a holiday by the sea. Yes. Says, our, our, our desires aren't too strong. They're too weak. 
we are yeah. far too easily pleased. And and that scene with with the red lizard on the ghost's shoulder, it it, it plays out like every single scene I think I've ever struggled with. All the same excuses that I that I give. <laughs> oh no, no, I'll just do do, the, do this gradually. Oh, it's not so bad. Uh, and in the end, I just have to decide. I've, I've got to give an answer one way or the other to the question: May I kill it? Yeah. Can I tell you the funniest thing though of trying to describe lust as a giant as a a dragon on your shoulder? Whenever I try to describe that scene to people, I always feel like a total idiot, right? Like, well, this is, he's on his shoulder and he's telling him like, "You can't live without me." And then the angel's like, "Can I kill it?" And it's so funny because people don't get it, but then when they read it, they're like, oh my goodness, that was my favorite part. That was my favorite part. What's your favorite? What is your favorite? I'm turning the tables now. I'm going, I'm, I'm interviewing you. Okay. Uh, uh, if you could only read one C.S. Lewis book, what would it be? I think it would be The Great Divorce. I have yep. endless arguments with Andrew over which is Lewis's best book, but I think The Great Divorce is Lewis at his best insofar as the, the amount of ground that he covers, yeah. the striking images and vignettes that he gives us as well as a both positive and negative uh, yeah. you know in the in the screwtape letters you have that final chapter where spoiler warning the uh, the patient dies and goes to heaven and it's beautiful but yeah. throughout the the great divorce you catch glimpses of what bringing it full circle real goodness is like mm -hmm. what real holiness is is like it is not something bland and insipid and dull, yeah. but it is reality itself. It is real. It is tangible and it is strong. And I can't read the description of Sarah Smith without my heart skipping a beat a little bit, yeah. uh, desiring something more than this world, and 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 feeling sad as as we see ghost after ghost settle for crumbs when a banquet is laid out in front of them. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean. I love mere Christianity, especially the whole tin soldiers becoming real. That's one oh, of my favorite beautiful. parts. Mm -hmm. And the best part about that is when he, he says uh, he's talking to the reader or the listener in the BBC broadcast. I don't know which, but in it, he says, you know, this could this could be for you right now if you'd like. It could and start I remember tonight. the yeah, yeah, it could start tonight. And I remember literally when I first listened to that on an audio book. I was driving in my car and I, I turned it off and began to weep because I was like, that's all, that's what we mean by salvation by faith is I don't need to have a bloodline to some tribe. I don't need to have my life in order before I come before the crucified savior right now, tonight, I can begin the journey that echoes into eternity. And, uh, but the great divorce, the great divorce is so incredible because it shows you the unreality of sin, of a life lived for sin. Napoleon, you know, some of us have ventured all the way out to where Napoleon is, and he's just marching by. If only so and so had done this, and if only, so, and he's just reliving, you know, Reverend Timothy Keller. And I'm a big fan of mm -hmm. uh, Reverend Me Timothy too. Keller. A lot of Reformed theology and and um, Presbyterianism. I'm a massive fan of. Um, it one because I, as a youth minister, you tend to focus more on the writings of evangelicals, and it becomes very comforting when you hear a Presbyterian talk about liturgy. And I'm like, oh, thank God, someone say liturgy and sacrament. <laughs> I'm just looking for a Protestant to throw me a bone, you know, uh, desiring the kingdom, one of the best books on liturgy. And he's not even, you know, he's Reformed Presbyterian, you know, all that good stuff. But when he is going through. Uh, one, one of the parts that I didn't get at first, 
And then in my second reading, I think is one of the most important things, is the bus coming through the crack in the dirt that is the real heaven, right? Like everything's so small and almost unreal mm-hmm. when it compares to it. And um, Reverend Timothy Keller has this line where he says, the word wraith, which is an, you know, an old German word for ghost, the word wreath and the word wrath are all based on the same word that is the origin is wreath. And what is a wreath but a bunch of branches that are twisted in on itself? What is wrath but something that twists you up inside in your anger that you can't get beyond your rage and it feeds itself? And he says, and what is a wraith but a ghost that can't go on to the afterlife because it's bent and twisted on some past hurt? And he said, and forgiveness allows you to get rid of the wrath and to no longer be a wraith, to no longer be obsessed with this thing. And when I think about that, like the Napoleon character, he's a wraith in the most perfect thing because he's just he's just pacing and mm-hmm. he can't see other people. He can't even hear the people looking through the windows. He's just obsessed with what happened at the fall of the Battle of Waterloo and he's just rehearsing it over. I mean, how many times have I rehearsed a hurt or an embarrassment? Or, you know, whatever, over and over. Oh, what I should have said was, you know, over and over. And he just nails it. And lastly, I'll say, I remember Reverend Timothy Keller being interviewed by John Piper about his love of C.S. Lewis. And he said to him, how, you know, like, I love C.S. Lewis too. How could C.S. Lewis say the most important Christian in his life was George MacDonald when he was a universalist? Mm-hmm. And the way Lewis has George McDonald talked to him at the end of uh, a great divorce where he talks about, you know, the universalist is, is from our side looking at God's mercy. You know, he talks about like looking at the telescope through the wrong lens and like all this stuff. I must've listened to that one day when I was out for a walk, like 30 times, I just went right back and like, let's play that again. Let's play that again. Let's play that again. It, it was beautiful. And I, I literally almost emailed John Piper and just said, just listen to this one part. I think you'll resolve that YouTube video I saw from eight years ago that, you know, like this is where C.S. Lewis draws so much. Obviously the mythology, the the symbolic representation, but he, he incorporates them. Like this is how I think he justifies, um, you know, um, George MacDonald's universalism, how he wedges it into C.S. Lewis's kind of inclusionism. Yeah. And and that's sort of definitely a section I have read and reread in a very similar kind of fashion. Um, I have one more question. Well, technically two, but before we get to that, I, I I want to say that when we went through the Great Divorce on the show, the phrase that we re- used repeatedly it was one was originally said by Saint Augustine, I think, and then picked up by Martin Luther: "Incavatus in se, a soul turned in on itself." That. Or that this is why the the ghosts and the gray town are so weak because they're just turned in on themselves. Whereas the Christian invitation to life is to turn out from yourself to the others, both my neighbor and to God. And that's where real life actually is. Oh, and it's so good. It's so good because if you look at um, especially Cardinal Ratzinger's theology of his his atonement his soteriology but his christology is jesus or even his trinitarian theology is a man for others 
right? When you look at the Trinity, you see someone that is essentially for the other, right? Mm -hmm. The father giving himself in love to the son, the son receiving and returning. Jesus as the son being sent into the world, the Holy Spirit being sent by the father and the son. There is this image of this constantly, this giftedness at the very core of being itself. And so you look at JP2 and his theology of the body where the law of the gift is the law of human nature, is the law of marital intimacy, like this constant giving away of yourself. And uh, the, this notion of Jesus on the cross being for man, for others, a man for others, constantly draws one out of oneself. And the saddest thing I see in doing youth ministry and young adult ministry is we are a generation of hyper self-concerned people. You know, whether you're talking about self-help, whether you're talking about self-care, right? You're talking about like, I work with tons of self-promotion. It's patreon.com slash CF. That's (laughs) patreon.com slash CF. No, but like, like brides, I do marriages. The number one anthem anthem of brides is this is my day and it's special poison yeah this is this is my day it's for me no it's not did you know like if you actually get into the right of christian marriage in the catholic church the average the the typical wedding is to be celebrated at the sunday mass so that like because it's the community it's not your day it's god's day that god forms this beautiful covenant with two people, not one person who's dressed like a queen and then a man who's dressed like every like other waiter. man. <laughs> yeah, like a waiter. <laughs> Welcome to Olive Garden when you're here, your family, right? I love Jerry Seinfeld. He says, uh, you know, why are all the groomsmen dressed the same? Because if the groom doesn't show up, everyone just takes one step to the right. Like, no one cares about the guy, right? But that's so sad. That's so sad. Um, I, I remember people talking about our, our chapel that we're building, which has all these ancient relics of the apostles and stuff. And someone said, whoa, 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 is it going to have a center aisle? Because my daughter's not going to get married there if it doesn't have a center aisle. And I thought that's so funny that, like, because she has to be the center of attention. And I know it looks good. It's very symmetrical. <laughs> but but at the heart of it, we are trying to find ways, even liturgically, of robbing God of his worship and bending it inward. Like funerals, Catholic funerals are not allowed to have eulogies. Almost every Catholic funeral has a eulogy, even though you're not supposed to, because it's like, well, what am I going to do? Tell a grieving person, like, okay, don't. But what does a eulogy do? It makes it all about the deceased instead of worshiping God, you know, and and realizing that we'll never be closer than in the Eucharistic communion that we experience right now than hopefully our beloved deceased is experiencing in the afterlife. You know, like, there's so much, there's so much beauty that we miss when we collapse in on ourselves that Lewis nailed it when he shows the gray town and the the bus stop and the the what what's the one whining is it the whining mother is it a mother who like oh, oh I've done everything son. for you is it the son yeah just well, and there's also a, a wife yeah, women don't get a good showing in the great divorce uh, there's also <laughs> a, a wife who wants her husband back so she can do things to him yeah like oh yes yes that's great i'm, I'm so like, lonely whole- i have to have some somebody to do things to <laughs> but that 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 notion of i mean just think about how how different ownership of another person is to self-donating love 
Yeah. Like the consumption of another. And he has that great line in um, the screw tape letters. Um, the enemy wants um, servants who can eventually become sons where our father below wants cattle that eventually become food. I mean, what better, what better phrase in, in, I would challenge that statement to go up against anything from the fathers, which is a mm. big statement. No, thank God you're not orthodox because I think if you were orthodox, you'd punch me in the mouth. But uh, (laughs) well, I'm Byzantine, so it's like the next best thing. It's even better. (laughs) It's Orthodox 2.0. All the goodness of the East with with the Pope. Uh, No, but when when you when you hear that, like that phrase, like puts things in such light because we do that, don't we? Don't we consume one another? Mm-hmm. Don't we want to be consumed by one another when we're feeling lonely as a as a numbing remedy for our for our, I, I don't know I could go off but uh, I got to stop talking because good lord. <laughs> well, uh, Andrew would have to jump in at this point and say that this is a central theme of till we have faces. It's all about loving that isn't actually loving. It is loving that is consuming the other, rather than you know to steal Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, to seek the good of the other as other. Yeah. Hmm. Me and my wife read Till We Have Faces. It's the only book we read at our first year of marriage before we had a kiddo that we read together. Because she, I'm a bookworm, she's not. But she loves C.S. Lewis. And Till We Have Faces was a book that um, she's always wanted to read but never read. And so I was like, okay, well, why don't we do this book and we'll read it together and we'll talk about it. And it was the first and only time we've ever done that in 12 <laughs> years of marriage. Uh but uh, talking about it, you had sent some information about that, and I was like, maybe I can get my wife. We can reread till we have faces. But she didn't know the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Like that wasn't a cool thing for her. For all those hip kids watching NASCAR, they don't know. My wife literally, as we were starting this, she was watching a documentary on a NASCAR driver, and I was like, "Gosh, where's your Bud Light? Oh wait, you're gluten sensitive. <laughs> if you weren't gluten sensitive, you would have a Bud Light can in your hand right now." But, the only um, kind of turn that's important is the left hand turn. <laughs> but we we uh, we read that book, and you're right. Like the the consuming kind of love that loses all sight of. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Where they were talking about sex with one's spouse. Uh, it might have been Letters to Malcolm, where they're talking about sex with your spouse, where you. You're like, I'm sick and tired of all these people who are trying to like deify love. Do you know what I'm talking about? Deify sex. And they said, you know, half the time when you're making love, you don't even know the other person exists. I might be confusing with Diedrich von Hildebrand, but. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound familiar. Okay. Uh, the, the, the thing that I've got in my head uh, in response to that is in The Four Loves where Lewis says that love, when it's made of God, becomes a demon. Yeah. Yeah, because when it's made, when it's something outside of what it is, Dr. Hahn used to always say the problem with modernity is we relativize the absolute and we absolutize the relative. So we make things like money and acquisition and greed, the the thing that, or productivity, what defines the value of a human life. So we can abort the young, we can euthanize the old because they're unproductive. But come on, let's be honest. Like, like come on. We know that those are relative values against the absolute value of the human person. But this this notion of of sex as a consumer good that was first rooted in how sex makes me feel as one participating in it then very easily becomes 
a consumer choice of your pornography on you know a website oh well this is what i'm in the mood for i'm in the mood for no tonight it's going to be this like we have menus upon menus and options upon options and the whole time we have no idea that we're just consuming other people we're and and it's not fulfilling no one no one looks at pornography and does all the things that you do when you look at pornography and says you know what that was awesome I'm going to go for a run. You know, <laughs> no one, no one thinks that no one thinks my life just got better because, you know, I, I indulged in this stuff. You kind of think, all right, like even in the positive thing, you might think that was funny. You know, these secular comedians who talk about porn, like I'm, I love watching comedians, but their voracious at consumption of pornography is like a theme with a lot of comedians and it never leaves them better. It never does. Right. It just leaves them spent, and that's not what love is meant to be. There's something so much more beautiful than that. Mm. Anywho, it's exchanging you know a, a person that you should love for a person that you just simply use. Yeah, no one wants to be used. The only reason why we settle for being used is because we're scared of being ignored, mm. right? Reverend Timothy Keller, I just shared this with the priests at the provincial assembly. L literally everything I say is going to be a reference to something I've done recently. Uh, <laughs> at the provincial assembly, I stole Reverend Timothy Keller because you had said in your thing that you have a lot of Presbyterian listeners, right? Mm -hmm, we do. Welcome, Presbyterians. Uh, <laughs> I love you among all the Protestants. Um, but Reverend Timothy Keller has this beautiful line where he talks about um, and he uses it in the context of the Samaritan woman at the well, right? He says, every human person wants to be known and wants to be loved. Everyone, without exception. He says, to be loved but not known is superficial and weak, and you cannot build a life on that. You can't build a relationship. If you say, I love you, but you don't know me, that's like Taylor Swift, me at a Tay-Tay concert. And she's like, I love all my fans. I'm not going to call my wife and be like, oh, God, I'm in a love triangle, honey. <laughs> Right when she sees me, she sees a yacht in the Mediterranean. That's all she sees. I'm just cash money to her. For her to say I love you, she doesn't know you, so I can't build a relationship with Taylor Swift because she loves her fans. If I could, then how the hell hasn't she replied to any of my tweets or DMs at Taylor Swift 13? Like, come on. So, so okay. So we know to be loved but not known is shallow, superficial. But what about the opposite? Reverend Timothy Keller says this, and it hit me to my core when he said this. To be known but not loved is our greatest nightmare. For someone to say, I know you, I know the real you, no one could love you. Like, I know who you really are. We are so afraid of that that we settle for the inverse. We settle to be loved but not known. We settle to be used but not cared for. We settle to become a commodity rather than being rejected. And what does Christ reveal to the Samaritan woman at the well? You know, he's, he's finally leading her. The conversation finally gets good in John four. Then he says, go get your husband. I remember reading that being like, Jesus, you had her. He was, she was right there. She was following. You were going to convert her to be a Jew and then a Christian. I don't know what the progress was, but that's what it seemed like. And then right there, he says, go get your husband. Such a non sequitur, except for what he revealed to her heart. Because she was shunned by her community because of her crazy sexual personal life. It was out of the norm. She wasn't with her husband. It wasn't a normal arrangement, whatever it was. And in the moment, she she even tried to hide it. Uh, I'm not married. Yeah, you're right. The one you're with now is not your husband. You've had five. 
she tries to obfuscate. She tries to hide. She tries to cover. And what does Jesus reveal in saying, the one you're with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. He reveals her that he's known her the whole time. So she's like, I'm scared to tell him the truth about me because he's going to reject me like everyone else in my village has. And what he reveals to her is, I've known you the whole time and I haven't rejected you at all. And then so what does she do? She runs to the village and says, come meet this man who's shown me all that I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? And they, she becomes an apostle. Like that's the beauty of to be known and to be loved does to the human soul, especially the human soul that's starved for both or one or the other. And only in Christ Jesus do we have someone who knows us in the most disgusting, depraved, catching foxes style comment we've ever said. And he loves us. And he's willing to pay the ransom for us. Like, that's the uniqueness of Christianity. One of my friends often paraphrased what she said when she went into the town as, uh, come meet the man who knows everything I've ever done and loves me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Reverend Timothy Keller says, he loves me all the way down to the, or he knows me all the way down to the soles of my feet, yet loves me all the way to the stars, which admittedly is a very hokey expression. But man, do I use it every single time I tell that story. I use it every single time. Oh, us Presbyterians, we are so in love with Timothy Keller. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have one more thing that I want to do before we wrap oh, no. things up. I want to give you a scenario. Okay. Let's say next week you become Pope. Boom. Two questions. What name would you take as Pope? And the more important question when you step out on the balcony of the Vatican to greet the people, what would you say to the church about sharing the gospel, building vibrant parishes, and transforming the world? Go. <laughs> Question number one. My name would be Pope Peter II, because take that, Protestants. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but seriously, Pope Peter II, I think that's awesome. Since I've got a, a son on the way, I want him to become Pope, and I want him to be called Pope Hilarious. And I want him to open with a joke. <laughs> oh, what name will he take? Pope Hilarious. <laughs> What's the? He walk out there, my dear young people. Two popes and a rabbi walk into a bar. The other one ducked. Right. Okay. So uh, no, I would literally. I've thought about this. I would take Pope Peter the Second because why not? Either, either that or Innocent the Fourth. Um, no, no, no. Take Peter the Second. Um, and then step out on the balcony to greet the people. What would you say to the? I love Pope John Paul, right? Like, like be not afraid. First words. <laughs> so for right? you, would be be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> I think literally my first words would would be whoopsie. <laughs> How did this happen? Uh, we we royally screwed up somewhere. But no, my my message my message would honestly be, um, if if I ever became Pope, not that I think about this day and night, uh, and don't already have a uh, ten thousand word manuscript written up for what i would say but uh it, it would <laughs> it would literally be there is nothing more and nothing other than jesus christ right and the church constantly forgets jesus and like i can't tell you when when she teaches her morality she forgets jesus when she teaches her social justice so often she forgets jesus we say it's all in the name of jesus but we forget like I, I I get accosted by liberal priests who only see who talk about serving the poor, 
but who never want to bring the poor to heaven, who never go out of their, they feed their bellies, but they have no concern for their souls. And then I meet people on the right, priests and, and, and workers for the church on the right, who are so concerned about perfect liturgies and traditional liturgies and perfect doctrine that they miss the person, you know? And I constantly feel like this is what you miss with JP2 and Benedict. This is what you totally miss with their papacies. Christ is standing right in front of you. Let's worship him, follow him, be directed to him. Everything that we do is like the church keeps talking about being Christocentric. And I feel like so often we don't live that out. We don't live out the Christocentrism of the church, and that's all I want. To me, the Eastern the Eastern Church has it best. It never lost sight of the fact that salvation is not the death of God, but is first the union of the incarnation. It starts with the divine and human in union. That is what overcomes the alienation of sin, right? That's constantly the message of the fathers. No matter how much the fathers point us to the cross, they always put it within the context of the incarnation, right? So God himself united himself to a baby, to a, a toddler, to a child, to an adult. And and one of my favorite lines from um, this one metropolitan, former metropolitan and retired, whatever, he said, uh, in death, we triumph over Satan because God still united himself to the corpse of Christ on Holy Saturday. So even death is union with God. And I think in the West, so often, all we focus on is the crucifixion and the shedding of blood. We lose sight of the fact that the whole, even though the catechism says this in like six different places, the whole life of Christ is salvific. And I want people to see that. I want them to see that. So Pope Peter II Let's get back to the whole salvific life of Christ. That's what I want. See how I pandered to you as a Byzantine Catholic? See how I did that at the end? Total pandering. I appreciated it. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I will pay you twice what I was going to pay you before. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gomez, thank you so much for coming on Pines for Jack. So as we begin to wrap up, where can listeners go to find out more information about you and listen to all of your various podcasts? Yes. So we got layevangelist.com, a website seen by dozens. I'm the creative director, which means I've updated a blog post maybe once a year. Uh, Soundcloud.com slash amdgomer. I didn't realize I was signing up for a URL. I thought that was just like my username. And I was like, oh, okay, the whole world is going to see AMD Gomer. So there's that AMDG thing. Um, or you could go to uh, Every Knee Shall Bow, wherever you listen to podcasts or Catching Foxes. You go to catchingfoxes.fm or EKSB is uh, hosted by Ascension Press. So you go to ascensionpress.com and you can find it under their media slash podcast. So that's, that's all the places I'm at right now. Right now. <laughs> well thanks again to goma for coming on the show and thanks to all of you for listening and to our patreon supporters particularly our top tier supporters dawn sterling shane john kevin brian k monique paul kimberly gillis gary stephen matt jeff kelly chris john james kate and rowdy rowdy you rowdy you my boy <laughs> or girl i can't tell by the name rowdy God i'm pretty you. sure it's a boy <laughs> nice i have a friend named rowdy reigns and it's a girl but hey that's fine it's a nickname. And you, <laughs> and you can always find out more about us at pineswithjack.com. 
send us messages, listen to past episodes, and pick up some uh, swanky merchandise. What's your favorite merchandise item you sell? Uh, mm, difficult. Tube top? Uh, Do you have a Pints with Aquinas tube top? <laughs> we have Pints with Jack. Going I said glass. Pints with Aquinas. Wouldn't that be funny if you sold Pints with Aquinas tube tops just to humiliate him? Well, pints it's, with it's Jack funny. Alters. Matt had uh, Peter Craft on the show and uh, recently and they were talking about c.s lewis and i was like oh that's it i'm gonna mail peter Craig and say hey do you want to come on my show and talk about thomas aquinas um, <laughs> that would be awesome that would be awesome <laughs> noble even uh What's no, your i like thing? the, the glencairn glass and t-shirt i think probably the the things that i use the most yeah noble noble i like it well listeners please join us again next time when we're going further up and further in cheers cheers